started last week a series about the problem of evil, and uh, I titled it that because that's what people that talk about these kinds of things call it, but the subject isn't really evil. The subject is God and the world, and what's the nature of God, and what's the nature of the world that we live in? What kind of world is it? And there aren't really any more important topics in the kingdom than this one. Because we need to know, we need to understand what sort of God God is and what sort of world we live in. And uh, what we're trying to do in this series is construct what is called a theodicy. Everybody say theodicy. theodicy. That is a technical theological term. Uh, I'm, I think I'm ringing still a little bit. Um, a technical theological term that describes an attempt to justify or explain the goodness of God in light of the fact that there is evil. How many of you understand there's bad stuff in the world? And so the question is, why is that bad stuff there if God is good and God is all-powerful, which we believe that he is? Everybody has a theodicy. Now, some people's theodicy just consists of God works in mysterious ways, and that's the end of it, okay? And if, if that's working for you, I'm okay with it, all right? But for most people, we have to have a more thorough answer to that question in order to do life. And many people have unfortunately given up on their faith or given up on uh, Christianity or just become agnostic because they weren't able to get good answers to this question. And so even if you have settled this answer in your, in your own heart, I want to help you try to understand what you believe in a deeper level, even if you don't necessarily agree with me. Um, but I'll tell you, I've, I've talked to lots and lots of people throughout the years, and people very often will tell me that they agree with me that, that there is free will, and then they'll say a bunch of stuff which shows that they don't believe that there's free will. Okay, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just trying to help you understand that I think sometimes we have squishy theology, and uh, we have a theology of, of convenience, uh, so it's like convenient for me to have free will, but it's inconvenient for other people too, have you noticed that? And so often people, even though they believe in their own free will, will pray that God will override somebody else's free will, <laughs> so that they'll be nice to them. Anybody ever notice that? <laughs> okay, and so what we have to do is think through these things thoroughly uh, in order to, to try to understand where we are. Last week I said that there are basically two models within Christianity. One is called the blueprint model, and the other one's called the warfare model. The blueprint model suggests that all evil exists on some level because God wills it, and it is therefore serving some higher purpose. And depending on the evil, like, you know, in certain circumstances, it might be easy to see what positive thing is coming out of an evil circumstance. Uh, but in other situations, it's very difficult. And in those situations, people usually appeal to mystery and they just say, well, we don't know why this is furthering the plan of God, but we know that it is, and someday we'll get to heaven and then we'll see. On the other hand is the warfare model, which is what I believe, and that believes that evil exists because of the free will choices of individuals, both human and non-human, which is what we're going to talk about today at length, 
and that there are some evil things that occur simply because it's, it's gratuitous, meaning that it doesn't further any higher goal. It's just evil. And uh, that is, to me, the explanation. So before I try to defend that position, I just want to show you that the Bible does depict God as being at war with evil, and that the world is a war zone. Now, in the blueprint model, you'd say, well, it just looks like a, a war zone. But in fact, it's, it's all part of the plan. Uh, I tend to think that, well, I don't tend to, I do think that it looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. But in any case, the fact is it either looks like one or it is one. And so the question is, why is it that way? So I'm going to say some stuff today that is maybe a little bit startling. It was to me. Um, but it's all going to build to something, a climax next week. And then I'm going to say a bunch of other stuff that's really interesting. So I'm excited. I'm as excited to teach this as anything I've taught you. So if you look at Job chapter 38, let's start there. To understand this, we've got to kind of go back to the beginning and then teach through to, to where we're at now. So we're going to get right up to Jesus today. Uh, so you have to come back for the happy ending, all right? So Job 38, verse 4, God is talking to Job, and he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Then verse 7 says, When, or at the same time, when the morning stars sang for joy, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All right, this clearly shows that before God laid the foundations of the earth, there were these beings called sons of God, or morning stars, and, and stars consistently throughout the scripture, reference angels. What this shows us is a clear theological point that prior to God creating the earth, he had at some point in the past created a heavenly host, spiritual beings. Everybody with me so far? Okay, now, here's where it gets really interesting. Turn over to Psalm 82. What is this angelic realm like. I used to think that the Bible didn't give us a whole lot of insight into this, and we ought to just sort of try not to, to pay it too much attention. <laughs> but, and, and I do think that we can become over-focused, certainly on the devil and, and spiritual beings and stuff, but the Bible gives us a lot more information about this realm than I realized. So we're going to read Psalm 82. This now really affects my worldview in a significant way. So in verse 1, it says, God stands in the congregation, or a better translation would say council, and some translations say that, in the council of the mighty, he judges among the gods. What does he say to them? How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the needy, deliver the poor and the needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Notice verse 6. I have said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you will inherit all nations. Okay, the key to understanding this verse and a huge part of the Bible is to understand the word Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. Elohim, Elohim is, is the Hebrew word for God. 
But it's an interesting word. It can either be singular or plural depending on the surrounding context. It's like the word sheep. You can have one sheep, two sheep, three sheep, four sheep, but either way it's all sheep. You can also have one Elohim, two Elohim, three Elohim, four Elohim. Either way, they're all Elohim. Depending on the context. In Psalm 82, verse 1, Elohim appears twice. In the first instance, it's singular. In the second instance, it's plural. Let's read it again. He says, God stands. Does anybody remember subject-verb-agreement class? No. I used to be an English teacher. If you have a singular subject, you have to have a singular verb. Anybody remember that now? Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Stands is a singular verb, which means that Elohim there has to be singular, which means it's talking about the one God, Yahweh. Everybody with me? Yahweh, Elohim, stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among. Among implies heavily a plurality. You can't be among one person. Right? So, he stands among, the Hebrew word again is, the Elohim. That's why it's translated gods. Because it's plural. So, what's that mean? Well, (laughs) it suggests pretty heavily, and I'll show you this in different parts of the scripture, that God rules the earth through a heavenly council. And uh, this would have been very familiar to ancient Israelites because uh, various surrounding nations all thought that God, they had different gods, but they all thought that God ruled the earth through a pantheon, a, a group of lesser gods. All right, now that seems to fly in the face of Jewish monotheism, but, uh, and I don't want to go through all this, but Jew- Jewish monotheism never never believed that there was only one God. It, only, it just believed that there was only one uncreated God. So there's Yahweh and there's everybody else. But it's not that the everybody else doesn't exist. It's that compared to Yahweh, they're like nothing. Everybody with me? Okay, so who are these Lesser gods. He says he judges among the gods, and then he says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? We'll explain that further in a minute. But it's clear that there are other Elohim in Scripture besides God. And these would be the, less, the, the little g gods. And they're divine beings that were given rulership over segments of the earth. Just to give you an example of what one would look like, the serpent in Genesis 3 is probably one of these council members. Why? Because in the Hebrew, it's interesting, they didn't write the vowels. They would just write the consonants, and then you'd, you'd have to buy your memory, you'd, you'd figure out what the word was. Okay, And so that le- led to a lot of wordplay in the Hebrew. So I'm not going to go through all this, but... The, the, the Hebrew word for serpent, it's like a triple entendre. So it means serpent. That's a good translation. But it also could mean diviner. 
diviner, somebody that gets divine information and shares it with somebody else. It also means shimmering like copper. So here's the deal. When you go look at this, this, the picture then that that gives to an ancient Israelite reading this text, they would not think that Eve is just wandering through the forest and she sees a snake that talks to her. What they would have thought was that Eve runs into a divine being who apparently has legs and can talk, and this isn't surprising to her. You've noticed that, right? She's not surprised. And the person's a a diviner. He's a dispenser of, of divine information. Ezekiel 28 heavily suggests that God's counsel met in the Garden of Eden. So some of this is speculation, but it's possible that this serpent was on the council and that Eve had previously seen him. Again, that's speculation, but it would lend, make sense of what happens. If she sees him and he's a divine council member, his job is to dispense heavenly, heavenly information and then she come, he comes and says, look, I, you know, God's lying to you. Just eat, then it makes sense why she'd listen to him. Okay, so that's just an example of, of what one of these beings looks like. But let's just, let's just render this clear by an example in Scripture. So turn over to 1 Kings 22. Everybody okay so far? 1 Kings 22 I know this may take some getting used to, but it says in verse 19, it says this is a prophet, and a prophet is, is talking about a vision that he had. And he said, Hear therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. It's a council meeting. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this matter, and another said on this matter. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, How? And he said, I'll go forth and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You will persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. All right, did anybody ever watch Star Trek growing up? I'm the only person. Okay, well... And I always liked the Kirk, you know, because Kirk was like a man of action, and his solution to most problems was to punch somebody or make out with an alien. And and so, but then, then as I got older, I liked Captain Picard because he was more of a thinking man's captain. And when he was confronted with a problem, he would he would put it to his to his team, his council, and he would listen. And the, the robot guy Data would give a logical answer. And, and Deanna, the, the empath who could like read people's emotions, she'd give an emotional answer. And then Riker, who kind of took Kirk's place, he'd say, you should let me punch something or make out with an alien. And, and, and what Picard would do is he'd listen to everybody's input and then he'd pick the best solution and he'd say, make it so. That's basically what this describes. God's sitting in heaven, and God sets the agenda of the meeting. He says, we've got to go, 
and get Ahab to, to go fight in this battle so he'll die because it's a judgment on Ahab because he's done a lot of horrible things. But the way that is carried out, hear me, the way it's carried out is influenced heavenly, or heavily by these divine beings. That's what the Scripture says. They give a bunch of different options, and then one gives what God appears to think is the best option, and He says, go do it. Well, that's pretty intense. I don't know about you, but I don't normally think about heaven operating that way. It shows a lot of stuff. It shows, first of all, that God is super humble and that He's not interested in always being a dictator, always saying, having, having the solution. And I've known for years that God involves humanity in His decision-making process. I've taught that here before. But I've never projected that onto the heavenly realm. But it's clear here that God has a, a group of divine beings that He consults about how to deal with planet Earth. Well, that's intense. Okay, now, before we develop that further, some of you that, that know your Bible, you might be asking, well, what about Jesus' statements in John 10 where Jesus seems to imply that, that the Elohim in Psalm 82 are in fact humans, not, not angels. Anybody thinking that? A couple people. Okay. All right. So, uh, I can't take the time to go through all of that, but here's basically what, what happens is that uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and, and they're going to stone him for that. And he says, why are you going to stone me? Your scripture says you're gods, or you are gods. And, and, uh, and then he says, and I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. And so it gives the appearance that, that Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be mad at me for saying uh, I'm, I'm an Elohim, because all humans are Elohim. All right, the problem with that is it directly contradicts uh, everything else in John's theology. So look at real quickly at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God. Everybody see that word become? So in the Hebrew it means become. Or in the Greek it means become. So become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. So are humans inherently the sons of God? Not without, not without Jesus' intervention and you, and you putting faith in Him. Psalm 8 and verse 2 says, Who is man, verse 1 says, Who is man that you're mindful of Him, the Son of Man that you visited Him? You made Him a little lower than the Elohim. That's what it says. Now, who are the Elohim there? Well, Hebrews tells us, because Hebrews quotes it, and when the author of Hebrews quotes it, he says, You made Him a little lower than the Angels. Why? Because the angels are the Elohim. I'm losing some of you. Everybody's okay. So what the, the point is this is, is this is a this is a major concept in, in church history that that God wants to take people and make them divine. And and in that sense, he, he wants to make them immortal, basically. Who wants to live forever? Right? So everybody wants to live forever, right? But are you inherently immortal? 
No, I mean, you're going to die, right? So, so God had to do something to, to save you from hell and to save you from destruction and to make you, make you immortal. And so that process is called uh, theosis, or sometimes it's called apotheosis. But the whole, all of Christianity believes that you, you weren't that way, but then Jesus can make you that way. But you're not inherently that way. The reason that's such a big deal is the Gnostics thought that you were inherently that way. And that was the first heresy that entered the church. And they thought they had a secret knowledge that everybody was inherently divine and and you just needed a special messenger to come tell you that. And that's what they thought Jesus was. And so if Jesus is going around saying, look, you just need to recognize that you're inherently divine, you're inherently a son of God, then that undoes basically his whole purpose in coming here according to, to all Christian thought. So anyway, you can believe me about that or not, but that's, that's true. I had to summarize like eight months worth of reading in that, in that portion there. So what's Jesus actually saying? Uh, in my opinion, he's, he's, he's saying, look, you can't be mad at me for saying I'm an Elohim because the scripture clearly shows there's other Elohim. And that Jews were actually familiar with the concept of there being two Yahwehs. There was an embodied Yahweh and a heavenly Yahweh. And anyway, and then he says, uh, but I am in the Father and the Father's in me. So he basically says, but I am God. <laughs> he's kind of like at the end of Iron Man 1, but I am Iron Man. But, and so then, then they pick up stones and stone him. So anyway, uh, it, it's my belief that humans, even in the garden, were contingently immortal. The fact that they had a tree of life there suggests that they had to eat it in order to stay alive. All right. Everybody okay? All right. So what's the point, Pastor? Well, the point is that there are these Elohim that God rules through the earth, the earth through. Now the problem is that some of these Elohim sinned. 2 Peter 2, 4 says that clearly. It says that, For God spared not the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Jude 1.6 says basically the same thing. Look at Deuteronomy 32. This is a crazy verse. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 says, They sacrificed unto devils or demons, not to God, to gods. What do you think the word for gods there is? Elohim. Elohim, who they knew not. So it says, they sacrificed unto demons to Elohim they knew not. It expressly identifies some Elohim as demons. Some of the gods went rogue and became demons. Okay. So this heavenly council, according to Psalm 82, if you look, think back, he says, look, some of you guys are using the authority that I gave you wrongly. And he calls them to repentance, which in itself is a startling statement. Uh, does that mean, Pastor, that, that demons can repent? It's pretty clear in the Scripture that Satan, the head demon, his, his course is set. 
and we'll talk about this later, that free will eventually gives way to, to a restricted version of free will because your character hardens over time. And so I don't think that the devil probably can repent, but I don't know about some of the other Elohim. It doesn't say. So maybe there's a possibility. All right, but he threatens them and he says, even though you're gods, even though you're immortal, you're going to die like men. It's an implied threat. Now look at the back of your notes. In what sense do these fallen gods affect the earth? Look at, you're in Deuteronomy 32, hopefully. Look back at verse 7. It says this, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you the elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam and he set boundaries for the people. All right, when, when did God separate the people and set boundaries for all the nations? At, at the Tower of Babel. Anybody remember this? So at, at Babel, okay, so you've got to remember your, your history, right? So there's Noah, and Noah comes out of the ark, and God makes a covenant with Noah, and then Noah spreads out over the earth, all these nations. And God is in covenant with Noah, and so therefore he's in covenant with the whole nation, all the nations. But then... At Babel, all the nations get together and they, they build a, a ziggurat, a, a, you know, a tower, trying to get to heaven. How many of you understand Yahweh is always coming down here? Heaven's always coming to earth. So they said, look, we're rejecting this Yahweh that's always going to try to come down here and help us and we're going to be self-righteous and we're going to go up and be, go into heaven. And we're going to be like, it's very much like Isaiah 14, which is probably the devil speaking about how he's, he'll, he says, I'm going to ascend into the Most High. Or I'm going to be like the Most High, I'm going to ascend into the heavens. So what they're doing effectively is rejecting Yahweh, rejecting God, and saying we're going to be God. But after that, God comes down and He judges them, right? Everybody remembers this? And He's, he's going to spread everybody out. Well, how, how does he spread everybody out? It says he sets the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, how can that make any sense? Because Israel was not a nation when this happened. And the answer is that that scripture probably doesn't say that in the original language. The, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, which is the Bible that Jesus read, if you have a pen, you might scratch this out, where it says children of Israel, the Dead Sea Scrolls say sons of God. Which makes far more sense, and I'll show you why. It appears, and I'll show you this numerically in a minute, it appears that at, at Babel, God says... If you're going to disown me, I'm going to disinherit you, and I'll let you worship other gods. And he divided all the nations according to the number of the heavenly council. 
Now, why would you say that, Pastor? Well, before I do that, let me... Uh, and, well, so anyway, so then the nations fell under the power of evil forces. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. It's better translated, the wicked one. And then Ephesians 2.2 2 says that the prince of the power of the air is the devil. Okay? So I, I found this quote from Justin Martyr, which I thought was tremendous. He said, he was a second century apologist. He said, angels afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, and among men they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Whence also the poets and mythologists, not knowing that it was the angels and those demons who did these things, ascribed them to God himself. How good of a quote is that? Okay, let's talk about the number 70 for a minute. Some scholars have suggested that God's counsel consisted of 70 angelic beings. I have no idea whether or not that's true. But what I do know is that there was a, a nation right by Israel that they were very aware of named Ugarit, U-G-A-R-I-T. And this nation had a god named El, in a lesser, in a, in a co-regent named Baal. How many of you remember reading about Baal? Baal had a 70-member council of lesser gods that he ruled the earth through, supposedly. So what that tells me is that for an ancient Israelite reading the scripture, the number 70 would have, in their mind, painted a picture of the heavenly council. Whether or not there were actually 70 beings doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is that's what the numbers symbolized. Why is that significant? Well, because if you read the genealogy of Noah after the flood in Genesis 10, it branches all out, and it's hard to count if you count different ways, but it's just a big list of names. You can go back to Genesis 10. I tried to count it. It was confusing because it's like, which one do you count? because they're parents and all this and whatever. But the major Jewish scholars, how many nations do you think came out of, came out of uh, Noah according to the major Jewish scholars? Seventy. Now, whether or not there were actually 70 nations or not doesn't matter. The picture is clear. The picture is... God disinherited the nations as a judgment because they rejected him. And then he divided the nations up among these various other gods. And that's why when you see later Israel confronting all these foreign nations, they're worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and whatever, and Shamash and so forth. And my suggestion to you is those are idols certainly, but there's a demonic power behind them. And they would actually do rituals to open the mouth of the idol, which effectively they were trying to tie the demonic spirit to the, to the idol. Everybody okay? Okay, so what I think that shows, among other things, is that it's useful, I think, in my thinking to know that while Satan is the chief evil angel, it's not necessarily true that all of the spiritual forces of wickedness are under his direct control. Now, I know that Jesus said that if Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, it'll fall. So certainly, Satan's kingdom is united. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing outside of his dominion. Why, now, why does that even matter at all? This is speculation, okay? But how many of you notice that the, the, the evil a lot of times doesn't make any sense? And there's a lot of randomness going on. Well, it, it, it's apparent to me that some of that has to do with the fact that there are various principalities throughout the entire world that maybe have different objectives, different ways of controlling and abusing people and different ways of oppressing people and that they aren't always on the same page about how to go about that. Again, that's speculation. But it, it, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Another reason for that is you can... I read this long argument, which I can't summarize for you uh, right now, but it argued that the plagues of Egypt were allowed by God, but that they were caused by a band of roving, destructive angels. If that's the case, then these angels were picking fights with the demonic forces controlling Egypt. So again, I don't know whether or not that's 100% true, but I, I do think that's interesting. And it does appear that there are various demons in charge of oppressing various segments of the world in different ways. Okay. Well, that's all somewhat depressing. What's God going to do about the fact that people he loves are now worshiping idols and that the whole world is in the power of wickedness? Well, if you read verse 9 in this same chapter, it says in Deuteronomy 32, it says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So he disinherits all the other nations, but he calls one nation, the nation of Israel. But Genesis 22:18 tells us that he calls that nation not just so there can be one nation that worships him, but so that it says in Abraham will all the nations of the world be blessed. And in Abraham's seed. Now Paul tells us that that seed is Jesus, but initially it's the nation of Israel. And God's plan is to use the nation of Israel to free all these other nations from the demonic powers that are oppressing them. Does that make sense? Now, Israel fails in that task, and then Jesus shows up. But I want to show you something really interesting, and then we'll conclude for the day. Look at Numbers 11. In Numbers 11, God calls some elders. Numbers 11, verse 16, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me how many people? Seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of the congregation that they may stand before you. All right, if you read later, these, actually it's earlier, in Exodus um, 24, 9 through 11, we won't turn there. These 70 elders and Moses and Aaron go and have a meal with God in heaven. Read it. They go and have a meal with God on the sea of glass like crystal. Seventy of them in heaven with God. What's that a picture of? A heavenly council. What is he doing? He's, he's making a threat to the invisible powers. Your days are numbered. 
I'm about to swap out this heavenly council, and I'm going to install resurrected saints. Woo! <laughs> Hallelujah. In place. That's the threat. Jesus initially sends out 12 disciples, but then after that, how many does he send out? 70. The number's significant. I want to encourage you not to become a numerologist and like try to find patterns and all this weirdness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how the ancient Israelites thought about this stuff. They would have understood that the number 70 implied a divine heavenly council. That's how they thought about it. And so when God calls this, these elders of Israel and he anoints them, it's, a, it's an explicit threat to the principalities that their days are numbered. And then he says later in Psalm 82, look, you're going to die like men. Come on. The, the, ruling, the ruling powers of this world, their days are numbered. Now, what's amazing is Jesus came. How many of you know Jesus came? And Jesus won a decisive victory at Calvary over the devil. But here's the crazy thing. It's not what I thought. In fact, the way he won it is really significant, and it's totally different than anything I'd seen before. But in order to understand that, you're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> so same, same bat time, same bat channel. But if you could come up and play, Skylar. If everybody wants to stand up. How many of you will at least say that was interesting? <laughs> What's the point? Whether or not you followed all that or not, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I think it's really interesting. But I think what the Scripture teaches us is that there is a spirit realm. How many of you agree with that? There is a spirit realm, and some of these spirits are against us. But we don't need to fear that because God has a plan to deal with it. Amen? But it helps, it helps me to understand this and to think about these things in a different way in a different way. So I'm trying to help you understand the evil that's going on, and the reality is there's, there are real evil forces, there are evil agents, both natural and spiritual, that are, that are against us. But we don't need to fear that because Jesus is with us, and, and He's overcoming. So anyway, I'm going to pray for everybody. And uh, if my prayer team could come down here. I'm going to pray for everybody. And then... Uh, if you need personal prayer, you can come down in just a second and get prayed for. So, Father, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love. I thank you that right now you're pulling back the curtain and helping us see the unseen realm and not be intimidated by it, but to recognize that this stuff is going on and to play our part. We know we don't want to step outside our role but we want to fully engage with you in this battle. And we just thank you for that. We receive every good thing you have in Jesus' name.